Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. More than 1,000 prisoners die each year in U.S. jails, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and one-tenth of them occurs in Texas. In the nine-month period between October 1, 2017 and July 1, 2018, about 80 inmates died in Texas jails. The rate was 22% higher than the national average over the prior 13 years. Inadequate oversight might be one reason for the state's high death rate. The Texas Commission on Jail Standards sets the standards local jails are required to follow. The facilities that the commission oversees house over a million prisoners each year. The average daily population is about 65,000. 74% of the people in Texas jails are pre-trial detainees. Critics contend that the high death rate in Texas jails results from low correctional officer pay, which leads to understaffing and poor training. Recently, the starting annual pay increased from $27,000 to $30,000. Unheard Voices, a solidarity group for organizers inside Alabama prisons, released the following statement regarding a hunger strike at Holman Prison and repression targeting the strikers. Holman is notorious for staff violence and is a well-known national reference point in the prisoners' movement. Here's the statement. On March 20, 2019, at approximately 3.30 p.m., outside organizers for the Free Alabama Movement, FAM Queen Team, and Unheard Voices OTCJ received a phone call from Robert Earl Council, a.k.a. Connect Justice. Robert Earl Council relayed to us that he, in fact, had been transferred from Kilby Correctional Facility and placed in Limestone Correctional Facility. This placement at Limestone Correctional Facility is known as Statewide Solitary Housing, SHU. Council also relayed that he has now been notified by Limestone Administration that Commissioner Dunn and Institutional Director Cheryl Price have now entered him into solitary confinement for alleged investigative purposes after previously housing him in solitary for preventative measures. According to the Alabama Department of Corrections Administrative Rules and Regulations No. 403-ADOC, can in fact hold a confined citizen under investigation for a period of 72 hours in solitary confinement. However, Unheard Voices OTCJ and the Free Alabama Movement representative declare ADOC's actions contradictory, deceptive, and unwarranted. After Attorney David Gespis and Council's recent agreement with Alabama Department of Correction Attorneys and Jeffrey Dunn on March 14th, wherein the agreement consisted of Council ending his hunger strike and where he would be placed into general population. As it stands now, Jeffrey Dunn has defaulted on the set agreement by placing Council in limestone solitary housing. Council began another hunger strike on March 20, 2019 at 8 a.m. in protest of once again being placed in solitary without infraction and just cause, violating his 14th and 8th Amendment United States constitutional rights. Furthermore, at approximately 5 p.m. on March 20, 2019, Unheard Voices OTCJ and the Free Alabama Movement received notice that those still on hunger strike at Holman Correctional Facility are being retaliated against by administration at Holman. It was also reported that Captain Emerson at Holman Correctional Facility has ordered all running water to be cut off in each striker's cell. As of today, all those on hunger strike at Holman Correctional Facility are being denied water until they eat and will be forced to live in a cell with no way to flush toilets or consume fresh water. 
It is also being reported that ADOC is refusing to properly record and report all participating in said strike. On March 15th, Core Civic and the GEO Group, the country's two largest for-profit prison companies, succeeded in opposing shareholder resolutions against incarcerating separated immigrant children and parents. The Securities and Exchange Commission upheld the company's objections to the resolutions, finding that housing separated families is part of the company's, quote, ordinary business operations, unquote. Both companies run detention centers under contracts with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Though both companies denied that they house any children separated from their parents, they acknowledged that they do house parents separated from their children. The shareholder resolutions noted that the firms might change that policy in the future or might enter into future contracts to house separated children. Material supporting the resolutions indicated that CoreCivic and GEO have questionable histories with respect to incarcerating immigrant detainees, including employees sexually abusing female detainees, protests and hunger strikes at the immigrant detention centers, deaths in custody, and federal lawsuits against both firms for using detainees to work for wages as low as a dollar a day. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed an executive order declaring a moratorium on the death penalty in his state. The moratorium will last through Newsom's tenure in office. In signing the order, Newsom said, quote, the death penalty is absolute. It's irreversible and irreparable in the event of human error, unquote. He went on to say that the death penalty, quote, discriminates based on the color of your skin or how much money you make. It goes against the very values that we stand for, unquote. Newsom's move grants a stay of execution to the 737 people on death row in California. That's the largest death row of any state and a fourth of those on death row nationwide. Newsom's decision didn't come in a vacuum. It's the result of years of hard work by people throughout the state of California who opposed the death penalty and fought to abolish it. Last November, in a state referendum, over 64% of Florida voters passed Amendment 4, which permits 1.4 million people with former felony convictions to vote. However, on March 19th, the Republican-dominated Florida House Criminal Justice Subcommittee passed a new bill, CRJ3, which requires those with former felony convictions to pay all court fees in order to obtain the right to vote. Voting rights advocates denounced CRJ3 as a poll tax. The ACLU of Florida criticized the new bill because it forces Floridians with former felony convictions to pay courts, thereby, quote, effectively disenfranchising two categories of returning citizens for life, those with very small financial obligations that they will never be able to pay due to poverty, and those with financial obligations for nonviolent property crimes, unquote. The ACLU's political director added that the bill will prohibit people from voting on the basis of how much money they have. Last week, we heard the first part of a lecture by Max Felker Cantor on policing in Los Angeles, from the Watts Rebellion in the 60s to the brutal police beating of Rodney King in the 90s. This week, he continues to talk about the police murder of Eula Love and how her death affected the growing anti-police sentiment and protest in 1970s Los Angeles. Felker Cantor talks about how the chokehold, a once common police restraint tactic, was shown to be used predominantly on black Los Angeles residents. He also walks us through how anti-police protests continued to shape the landscape of policing in the area, as the LAPD focused on perceived gang and drug activity in the 1980s. 
He ends with the beating of Rodney King and its aftermath. Here he is. And for many, the love killing was indicative of the long history of repressive police practices, um, especially the killing of a middle-aged black woman who was um, a widow raising children with a very different look than what many people had envisioned of the people that LAPD had been abusing, and it's a kind of more widespread um, outcry. And they get a whole range of people who start to mobilize, including black ministers and the black middle class that joins in many of these protests as well. So it broadens the anti-police abuse movement at this moment. Um, and many come in to demand reform. And in many ways, this moment creates another crisis of legitimacy for the police as you get a widespread demand for change. Um, it helps shift attitude and public perceptions as well about the LAPD. Just as an example, in 1979, in polls conducted by the Los Angeles Times, the mainstream newspaper, find that 62% of blacks, which isn't surprising, disapproved of how the LAPD did its job. But at the same time, at that mo at, by that time, 25% of white Los Angelinos found that LAPD were not doing their job correctly, disapproved of their job. It finds also that nearly half of whites in the city now thought that the LAPD treated black and Latinos more harshly than whites. And so this is shifting public perception about the LAPD. Um, coming out of this, Mayor Tom Bradley and the Board of Police Commissioners demand investigation. It leads to a sort of month-long investigation into the killing and a four-part report into the killing in which the Board of Police Commissioners find that the officers made serious errors in approaching love with guns drawn. The report recommended changes to the LAPD's policies regarding the use of force, investigating and disciplining, uh, changes to their investigatory and disciplinary procedures, as well as things like human relations training, which we always get, you know, we could bring that up to the present. Um, Gates, picture here, this is in, this is, Gates, Tom Bradley, and then um, this guy named Stephen Reinhardt, who was on the Board of Police Commissioners. This is after. He uh, criticized the board's findings, but eventually accepts some limited changes to human relations training and the use of force policies coming out of this. And there were hopes that this event and this moment of police violence would lead the LAPD to alter some of its practices. Um, but coming on the heels of the killing of Eula Love, the LAPD runs into another series of crises in the form of the chokehold. The LAPD officers commonly used two forms of what they called control holds or chokeholds. Um, most of them occurred in situations that often did not warrant an escalation of use of force, um, such as when holds were used to make black victims, in the words of officers, quote, do the chicken meaning flopping around until they lost consciousness due to lack of oxygen. Between 1975 and 1985, the use of the chokehold resulted in 16 deaths in the city. 12 of the victims were black. Public opposition to the use of the chokehold um, results in the filing of a number of lawsuits in the early 1980s. Um, and by 1981, courts say that the LAPD should not be using the chokehold. However, and the Board of Police Commissioners also investigates the use of the chokehold, but Gates vehemently defended the department's use of the chokehold as an appropriate technique to keep their city's law-abiding residents safe, according to him. And officers continued to use the chokehold despite a federal kind of injunction against its use. 
To many in the black community, it was a clearly discriminatory and racist use of, of force. Gates further angers the black community when he suggests that blacks were, quote, were biologically more susceptible to injury from the chokehold because, quoting him, we may be finding that in some blacks, when it, meaning the hold, is applied, the veins or arteries do not open up as fast as they do in normal people, end quote. This leads, of course, to a whole range of protest. Uh, Gates eventually retracts his statement, um, but it does little to alleviate, obviously, the distrust among residents and criticism of the LAPD growing, that's growing among African-American politicians at the time. Um, one city councilman uh, re refers Gates to being like the segregationist governor of Georgia at the time, Lester Maddox, or, or before, you know, before, but he's referring to that. Um, this public outrage and political pressure pushes Gates to restrict the use of the chokehold moving forward. Um, and so it's a victory for anti-police protest, as supposedly the LAPD is, was not going to use such use of force techniques moving forward. Um, and this results in a number of multi-million dollar lawsuits through the late 80s and early 90s. Um, however, in response, and this is the kind of theme of the talk today, the LAPD then resorted to using things like aluminum batons, chemical irritants, tasers, um, and injuring suspects during arrests um, increased after the abolition of the chokehold, supposedly. Um, and this is relevant because when we get to Rodney King here in a few minutes, it's the use of aluminum batons. Um, and so this moment of supposedly change leads to these other, other areas of the use of force. Um, by the LAPD. Um, and in addition, reforms did nothing to actually take power away from the police and their authority to discipline officers. So that power continued to remain with the chief of police. And so as the LAPD comes under more intense criticism during the 1980s, they continue to uh, manufacture a new crisis under the war ages of the war on drugs and the war on gangs. Rising fears of drug use, in particular the kind of crack cocaine um, introduction in the early 1980s in LA, and the perceived connection, and I'm emphasizing perceived here, between drugs and gang activity led officials in the police department and city government to double down on aggressive, punitive, no-holds-barred approach to solving the drug crisis. Um, I can talk a little bit more about this at some point, but the police's own data suggested that the majority of the drug trade was not controlled by gangs, but they connect the gang and drug problem as, as one. And in, I argue it's part of that connection of the gang problem to the drug war that legitimates the police saying we're going to use a militarized approach to, to the drug crisis because it's about solving gang violence, because they connect the two problems. To be sure, gang violence had increased, but it occurred alongside new capacities for state violence. Um, law enforcement officials envisioned themselves engaged in low-intensity warfare. Um, as the head of the district attorney's hardcore drug unit stated in 1988, this is Vietnam here. So they're using counterinsurgency tactics. Um, you know, we could talk more with McColl about this, about the kind of coming, using Milita uh, military kind of counterinsurgency tactics coming from Vietnam and other places. Uh, 
And solutions to the gang problem largely target at young African-American men. Um, solutions resemble these counterinsurgency campaigns, as Daryl Gates called it. It's like having the Marine Corps invade an area that is still having little pockets of resistance. We can't have it. We've got to wipe them out. This sort of attitude is also facilitated by the role of the media. And so you have the media portrayals reinforcing views of urban neighborhoods as war zones. And in this case, I know it's not the biggest image of Newsweek um, uh, with a main titled article in this uh, issue called The Drug Gangs, explaining that crack had transformed, quote, some of the country's toughest street gangs into ghetto-based drug trafficking organizations that facilitated a form of urban guerrilla warfare, creating, quote, a nightmare landscape inhabited by marauding thugs and hard-nosed cops. Um, so fighting the drug war as part of the gang crisis led to broaden police capacity and authority. Local officials used statistics of rising drug crimes and rhetorical escalation to make the fight against drugs a militarized campaign and a central component of the city's crime control program. And in effect, nothing is off the table. And military equipment, in this case bought for the Olympics that were held in the city in 1984, was remobilized to wage the war on drugs and gangs. And on February 6, 1985, an LAPD SWAT team used this military-grade V100 tank-like vehicle emblazoned with LAPD rescue vehicle on the side, along with a 14-foot battering ram on the front of it, to smash down the wall of a supposed rock house in Pacoima, which was a predominantly black neighborhood at the time. Inside, the officers found two women, three children eating ice cream, a small amount of marijuana, no guns, and no cocaine. Chief Gates, along with a number of um, residents, as well as some African-American politicians, praised the tactics, believing that such a show of force would cause other rock houses, rock houses to shut down. But at the same time, black residents and a number of activists respond in moments of protest to stop the use of the battering ram. Um, and here's Chief Gates here, and you can see the, the battering ram there. Um, they, argued that the police protection and safety did not indeed entail stormtrooper tactics. The chairman of, one of the NAACP said quite succinctly, we don't need new weapons to be tried on us. Re representing residents who are neither drug dealers nor gang members, yet had been subjected to improper use of the RAM, the ACLU files a lawsuit um, and leads to an injunction against the LAPD's use of the battering ram, and they had to get court approval before they would use, could use it in the future. But nothing, in many ways, was more indicative of the scorched earth policies of the war on drugs than the LAPD's notorious Operation Hammer in 1988 and into 1989, in which the LAPD engaged in sustained operations that, whether intended or not, resulted in the near total surveillance and criminalization of a whole generation of black and Latino youth, focusing on street corners where gang members sold drugs, supposedly, reflected the way the drug war became implicated in this war on gangs, to, to, and they engaged in indiscriminate stops, searches, and arrests of black residents or anyone who fit a quote-unquote drug gang profile, which according to the LAPD could essentially apply to any African-American 
or Mexican-American or Latinx um, young man between the ages of 12 and 24 or 26. During sweeps, officers arrested any known gang members or suspected, suspected gang members, held them um, in holding for 24 hours at the LA Coliseum, which you know is the place where the Olympics were held and is near USC. They make over tw nearly 25 arrests, 25,000 arrests, excuse me, um, of, of which only about 13,000 were reportedly gang members. So they sweep up a whole kind of group of other Af African-American youth. Um, few of the arrests were ever charged, and many of those were picked up and released after holding for 24 hours. So very few are actually, nothing comes out of this except that many of these young men, largely young men, were entered into gang databases and in which they could then be used to escalate um, charges later um, under the STEP Act, uh, the Street Terrorism Enforcement Protection Act, uh, which I'm not going to talk too much about. But as the LAPD commented on this kind of event, quote, we're in the midst of a war over who is going to control the streets of this city, and we shall prevail. Or as Daryl Gates, who is in charge at this point, says, I think people believe that the only strategy we have is to put a lot of police officers on the street and harass people and make arrests for inconsequential kinds of things. And he admits that's part of the strategy, no question about it. Such practices give rise to kind of this scorched earth policy as well as criminal records for many black and Latino youth. Um, it does very little to actually stop drug use or gang violence, which maintains kind of a, a level at the same time. This is a drug bust that they are showing off in the media. Um, by the 1990s, this get tough approach and expanded police authority had produced what I argue is a vastly more punitive context. Um, many impoverished residents of color regarded the police as little more than frontline agents of control, containment, and exclusion. Punitive action and the excessive force created by a culture of disrespect and a lack of faith in law enforcement led to a tense situation. The volatile combination of punitive policy, police militarization, and long-standing anti-police sentiment would come to a head in the largest episode of civil unrest in American history. Stemming on coming out of the arrest of Rodney King in 1991 in March by the California Highway Patrol who called in LAPD officers to help um, this leads to a moment in which a seven, roughly 17 officers stand by, four LAPD officers beat Rodney King with aluminum batons for almost a minute. It's caught on videotape by a, a bystander who had a home video camera. It is then circulated on the nightly news and becomes a worldwide um, event. Officers obviously didn't know that this was being recorded, um, and it leads to public outcry and, again, another crisis for the police. It leads to public pressure, and for one of the first times, the mayor steps in and says, we have to stop these sorts of practices. Uh, it leads to the indictment of the four officers who are held, um, who are indicted and go to trial. Um, and so this trial of the officers involved in Rodney King, the argument that, I'm, that my book makes and that I make here, can, has to be understood within the context of two and a half decades of anti-police protest as well as police violence and expanded police power in the city. 
Four months later, the trial is moved 35 miles away to the predominantly white suburb of Simi Valley, which also happened to be a, a neighborhood where many police officers lived. Um, the jury included 10 whites, one Latino, and one Filipino American, but no African Americans. Yet, even with this kind of move of the trial to an all-white area and an almost predominantly white jury, to the surprise of many, all four officers are acquitted on April 29th, 1992. And in the days that followed, thousands of residents took the streets again in what became the largest urban uprising in American history, as well as another anti-police protest. Um, law enforcement agencies, and these are just a series of images of this, um, law enforcement agencies respond. My favorite one is this one, because it indicts the police. Um, with overwhelming force and mass arrests once again. Uh, Tom Bradley, the mayor, still at the time, he's there for 20 years, declares a state of emergency, calls in the National Guard, um, institutes a citywide curfew from sunset to sundown, or sunset to sunrise, excuse me. President George Bush at the time provides federal law enforcement officers um, who are given the authority to act as peace officers and to enforce laws to help restore or order during the uprising. Uh, these tactics of mass arrest result in nearly six, over 16,000 arrests, nearly 3,000 injured, um, and a whole lot of damage. Um, and to kind of, as I'm summing up here, this is a wake-up call. And I'll read this quote here for you if you can't read it in the back. Rooted in an expression of outrage directed against local political officials and law, law enforcement about poor social conditions and lack of changes to the police department over the course of nearly three decades. And as this is one Inglewood Blood who was interviewed by Mike Davis at the time who said, my homies be beat like dogs by the police every day. This riot is all about the homeboys murdered by the police. And what we could say is really referring to things like Operation Hammer and other police tactics of the 1980s uh, about the little sister killed by the Koreans. Um, this is referring to Latasha Harlan's and about 27 years of oppression, Rodney King is just the trigger. And so this sums up the kind of argument that I make in the book, as well as in presenting today, about having to understand how 92 occurs within this context of a longer history of anti-police protest, as well as police violence. Um, coming out of the 92 uprising, there's a number of reforms in the city. The they pass what is called Charter Amendment F in 1992, which leads to pushes, they push Gates to retire. He had been there for nearly 14 years at that time as chief of police. They, this Charter Amendment F changes the, and creates term limits for the chief of police, who can only be in, in power for two five-year terms, and after the first five years, has to go up to be reappointed. Um, it leads to things like community policing initiatives, and a range of others. Um, some of those com community policing initiatives were things like Operation Weed and Seed, which I talk about in the book and I'm happy to talk about more, which actually lead to more police in communities, um, as well as criminalization of young people and referring to um, oftentimes young black men as the weeds to be pulled out of, society, out of their communities. 
five, about five years later, six years later, LAPD kind of is is rocked again by the Rampart scandal, in which the LAPD it's exposed the LAPD officers had been stealing drugs from evidence rooms, selling them on the street, um, framing um, young black and Latino men for crimes, um, and some cases even. Um, <coughs> suggested, um, not proving, but suggesting that some of these officers had been involved in actually like um, shooting people like uh, and, and supposedly murders, but this is kind of a, a broader story. Um, and so this story we could kind of bring all the way to the present if we want to talk about Ferguson, um, Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, and a whole range of others, the way anti-police protest continues. Um, and to summarize there, these legacies of resistance, I argue, struck continue today. The stories of policing, race, and resistance that I show in, La in Los Angeles demonstrate that the police often acted as the enforcers of order. But at the same time, resistance to police abuse has a long history, and one that demonstrates the ways the police do not go unchallenged. This has been KiteLine. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.